We're in Psalm 103, that's page 502 in your pew Bible this morning. We're going to begin in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you from, with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones, who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we were in Psalm 69. And if you remember, we talked about the situation of it being an imprecatory psalm. In other words, a psalm that calls forth curses and judgment. And we looked at the the seeming contradiction of that particular psalm and the words of that psalm, which were very strong, calling forth damnation, really, on the people who were oppressing David, versus the words of Jesus when he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And how how do you reconcile those two things? How, if this is one story, do we have such a seeming contradiction? Well, the truth is, it's not a contradiction. And the reason it is not a contradiction is because, um, is because it, it is talking about God's anointed one. If you remember, David was God's anointed. And the lesson that the imprecatory Psalms teach us is that it is, it is absolutely the most important question, the most important decision we will ever make as to what we do with his ultimate anointed one, who is Jesus Christ. And for those who ultimately reject the Messiah, reject Jesus Christ, in fact, what, what this particular psalmist, David, called down upon his enemies will in fact happen. You see, David was his anointed. David was a picture of the ultimate anointed one. And so David, because he'd been anointed as king, um, God protects his anointed one. The lesson is God protects his anointed one. He will vindicate his anointed one. 
And just as David calls down this vindication here, which is not a contradiction to what Jesus taught in the New Testament because he was, in fact, an anointed one, the king, the ultimate anointed one is the Messiah. And one day, one day, damnation will come to all who reject the Messiah. That is, that is not a contradiction in Scripture. Scripture clearly teaches that. And then we ended with the idea that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Now is the time to embrace the anointed one, to, to take him to be the treasure of our lives. And when we come to this table this morning, that's what we're doing. That's what we're saying, that he is my greatest treasure. And we celebrate what this represents to us and the treasure that he is. And so you see, there's no contradiction in Scripture regarding the Old Testament and the New. If you've, if you've said, I, I like the God of the New Testament, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament, that is bad theology. It's one God, the same God. And you need the full-orbed revelation of that God. You need both the Old and the New Testament to, to get the picture. And the picture is God has sent an anointed one, the ultimate anointed one, his son. And the most important decision we'll ever make is what we do with that anointed one. That's what the imprecatory Psalms teach us. Now, what I want to do this morning, and then we're going to come to the table, is I want to look at Psalm 103 a bit this morning. We probably will not get through all of this this morning. But I want to look at Psalm 103 because within Psalm 103, we see a picture of one who has embraced God's anointed. An Old Testament picture, yes, but, an, but a picture just as much of, of what it looks like to embrace what this table represents. Now, an Old Testament picture of that, they didn't certainly understand the full revelation of that. They didn't understand fully what the Messiah would look like, that it would be Jesus Christ. But they look forward to that. And the psalmist here, it is clear, it is clear that the psalmist writes as an Old Testament saint, as one of God's people who has embraced the anointed one. He's not rejected the anointed one. Far be it, he's looking ahead to the coming of that anointed one. He's looking ahead to the promise of God. But nonetheless, he has embraced the anointed one. And so I think here then we get a picture a picture of what it is for us to embrace the anointed one in a new covenant context this morning. This represents the new covenant. We'll talk about that a bit. But the text that I want you to look at is is verse 17. There's certainly other texts we could look at that would exemplify the fact that he has embraced the anointed one. He's not rejected the anointed one. Whether whether outright in rejection, there's different ways that people reject the anointed one, reject Jesus Christ. They may do it with a clenched fist. They may say, I want nothing to do with that God. Or they might just do it by ambivalence, by just, by just disregarding him. Um, not by some declaration, but they just don't make him a part of their life. There's lots of ways to reject him. But certainly not the psalmist has not done this. And I see it in verse 17 where it says this, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. You see 
why he is one who has embraced the anointed one? Because he says the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on him. That's a definition of what it is to be one of God's people, that they understand from everlasting to everlasting, from the very beginning God loved them and will love them forever from both ends of eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. The steadfast love of the Lord they know has been upon them. The psalmist knew it has been upon him. He he understood that. Now, certainly that could not and is not true of those who reject the Messiah. We, the reason it's important to see the contrast of Psalm 69 and this particular psalm is because that is not true for everyone. That is not true for everyone. It is only true for Old Testament and New Testament saints who have embraced the Anointed One, who have embraced the Savior, who've, who've come to see the Savior, Jesus Christ, as the treasure that He is. They can be confident from everlasting. God knew us before we came to be and he loved us and he will love us through all eternity future. It will never end. It will never cease. There will be no wrath ever upon God's people. It will come on those again who reject him. That's the teaching of the imprecatory Psalms. It will come Someday upon those who reject the anointed one. That's the contrast. That's the reason I begin back in Psalm 69 and, and want you to see that. Now, we, we want to just quickly here this morning. We'll maybe unpack this later, but there's a couple of things that the psalmist says because he understands the steadfast love of the Lord. Two things. One is he emphasizes forgiveness. He knows forgiveness. In verse 3 it says, who forgives all our iniquity and heals all of our diseases. And then you go down to verses 10 and 12. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He knew the forgiveness of God. He knew that the anointed one that he was looking forward to would somehow, though he didn't certainly understand it as we can understand it looking back, would take care of his sin. He would move it, remove it as far as the east is from the west. It would not be held against him. And secondly, he knew that this God would work for his eternal good. You see it in verse 5. It says, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Two things are characteristic of God's people, both Old and New Testament. First of all, an understanding of the forgiveness of sin. And secondly, that God, because he's forgiven their sin, there's no longer wrath being ready to be revealed. That's what Romans talks about. There is a wrath ready to be revealed. It's it's the wrath of Psalm 69 that will fall on all who reject the anointed one. But for the one who has embraced the anointed one. No longer is that wrath ready to be revealed upon them. In fact, it turns not from wrath but to good. God works all things to good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. It's why he could say, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Two characteristics of God's people 
an understanding of the forgiveness of sin, and secondly, that God is turned toward them now, that they have access into his presence, that no longer is their wrath being stored up, but God works good to his people. He works eternal good for his people, and everything that comes into the life of his people is for their eternal good and is no longer punitory in the sense of punishment. Discipline, the Bible talks about discipline, but we discipline children for their good. Though we do it fallibly sometimes as adults, but God always does it for our good. He is working his good purposes in our life. So the psalmist understood that in his Old Testament understanding that God forgives sin and he works for good. And that should be a growing understanding, a much more clear understanding for us on this side of the cross. But he, he interestingly talks about something that is characteristic of the one who understands that. And I want you to look at it, and then we're going to come to the table. But if you go down into verse 17, again, let let me read this. There's three things I want to bring out here. It says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. We'll come back to that point. Then it goes on to say, And his righteousness to the children's children. Then it says this, To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Now that was an Old Testament understanding that the psalmist had. But there's three things there. It talks about those who keep his covenant, those who fear him, and those who remember his commandments. What does that look like in a New Testament, in a New Covenant sense? What does it mean to keep the covenant in the New Testament sense? In a new covenant sense. This is the, the Bible says, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is what this represents. Now certainly he was talking under the old covenant of, of the law and talked about keeping the covenant of the law. But we don't live under the old covenant now. We live under the new covenant. So in the old covenant, what did it look like for him? I think it looked like the fact that he did the prescribed sacrifices. And, and, and as we talked about in my Sunday school class this morning, those sacrifices, which had to be done year after year, on the Day of Atonement, the ultimate sacrifice, he looked to that, though he couldn't fully understand it, he couldn't comprehend it, he lived in faith, believing that in some way, in some form, his sin was forgiven because of this and he did this as a as a picture of that as a as a as a obedient way to live out what was under the old covenant and and he had an understanding that this was what god had prescribed and by faith he exercised these things and participated in these and the key is by faith by faith believed that in this was forgiveness In this, God was providing forgiveness and ultimately one day would forgive him. Now, in the new covenant sense, we understand the fulfillment of that, don't we? Sometimes we think, if I could have lived in the days when God parted the Red Sea and all the things that happened with Moses, with manna every morning, if I just lived there, it would have been easier. It would have been easier to live out my faith. Have you thought that? 
You read those stories in the Old Testament, you see God's deliverance in the Old Testament, and you think, if I'd have just lived there, how in the world could these people who God's parted the sea, walked through it, provided manna every morning, be a grumbling bunch of sinners? How could they do that? How could they turn their back on God again and again and again? And the truth is, it wasn't easier. They didn't have the full picture. They, by faith, looked to the promises, but in an Old Testament way. And one of the ways they worked out looking to those promises was in the prescribed ceremonial law that took place. They participated in that by faith, not as an outward, but by faith, trusting that somehow in this, their sin was forgiven. God was working good from everlasting to everlasting for them. But can you see how much more difficult it must have been for them to understand all of that and have the settledness? Now we come to the new covenant. And here in the new covenant, we begin to see the full orb picture of it. We begin to see what John the Baptist meant when he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was the ultimate Lamb of God. He was the ultimate anointed one who came. And so to keep the covenant in a New Testament sense is to look to Jesus, is to look to the fact that on the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. Is to say that my only hope is what this represents to me. My only hope of my sins being removed as far as the east is from the west is the work of Christ. I'm not looking anywhere else. I'm not looking in my performance. I'm looking in his performance. He accomplished what I couldn't accomplish myself. That's what it means to keep the covenant today. That's what it means to keep the new covenant is to understand what this table represents from the scriptures. That in the old covenant, year after year on the day of atonement, they had to make that sacrifice. And those who by faith looked to that, in faith, people like the psalmist were God's people. But oh, how different today. We see that no longer does it have to be performed year after year because Jesus did it once and it doesn't have to be repeated. He finished the work. He went to sit down at the right hand of the Father because the symbolism of setting was the work is finished. So we keep the covenant today. We keep the covenant by resting in all that this table represents to us because it represents Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then it says also in there that his love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. What does that have to do with it? What does does fear have to do with it? I think it has much to do with it. I think what it means is in, in the Old Testament sense, they had a sense of the transcendence of God. They had a sense of the holiness of God. They had a sense of the majesty of God. They had a sense of the mightiness of God so much that they trembled at it. And I think there's a sense in which we properly ought also to tremble. But not tremble in the sense that it causes us to run away from it and run away from that God. But 
the realization as we tremble that my only hope is to run to that God and all that he is for me in Christ. We don't take it lightly. We don't take God flippantly. We tremble at this God, but we also see that this God says, I am a refuge and strength. I'm a present help in trouble. And you read throughout the Psalms about God being a refuge and God being a shelter. We sang about it this morning. And what you do is the... As, as the fear and understanding of who this God is, he is, he is all of that. He's majestic and mighty and transcendent, but he's also eminent. He also entered into our world to show us that we could run to him. We could run to this God and find shelter in this God. It's the promise of the New Testament and the New Covenant. So it's not a fear that causes us to run away, but a fear that causes us to run to this God. And, and, and the fear is an understanding of our sin. The thing that causes us to fear, we understand our sin, but there's a remedy for our sin in this God. And then thirdly, it says, to those who keep his covenant and remember his commands. What, what does it mean? What, do, we, do we somehow earn our salvation? Are we, are we jumping around? Are we schizophrenic? Is there more than one message here of how you... How you get right with God? No. What does it mean to remember his commands? It means that, that the fruit, the fruit of understanding that our fear should drive us to this God to find refuge and to find shelter and it is a safe place to go to this God. The fruit of that is that we want to serve him. We want to live for him. We want to honor him. We want to glorify him with our lives. We want to live as he would want us to live in ways that is pleasing to him. But it is the fruit, it is not the root. It is not the root of our acceptance with God. It is the fruit of our acceptance with God. Certainly we remember his commandments. We remember the Ten Commandments, his moral admonitions to us. But he also, not only do we remember them, but he He puts his spirit in us and he writes those things on our hearts. That's the promise of the new covenant. Not only does he forgive our sins, but he writes his laws on our hearts. He changes our hearts to want to remember him, to want to glorify him. So this morning, as we come to the table, I pray that what is on our lips is what was on the lips of the psalmist. Look with me at verses, beginning at verse 1. As you come this morning, I hope you come saying this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that their youth is renewed like the eagles. Because the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, on those who keep his covenant, on those who remember his commands. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning to your table. We come because... 
you have opened our eyes to see the treasure of your son. Lord, physically eating this bread and drinking this cup does not save us. But it is a declaration of our hearts that we see the treasure of all that it represents. We see that in fact it is in his broken body and spilt blood that was given once for all that doesn't have to be repeated. And so, Father, we come this morning to to confess our sin and acknowledge to you how desperately we need the work of what this table represents to us and that to declare to you that it is there we stand and no place else. I pray you'll strengthen us, Father, as we eat and drink together. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like for the ushers to come and we're going to to serve you in the pews this morning. If you're new among us, we have open communion within our body and you only need to live under the invitation that's in the bulletin. If you can live under that, in fact, if you do live under that, we invite you to come and eat and taste and see that the Lord is good this morning. This represents the body of our Lord that was broken for us. We'd ask that you would hold it and we'll partake together. cross I kneel and see the measure of my sin how you became a curse for me though you were innocent the magnitude of your great love was shown in full degree when righteous blood the crimson spilled Rain down from Calvary. Oh, the precious blood that flowed from mercy's side washed away my sin when Christ my Savior died. Oh, the precious blood of Christ the crucified It speaks for me before your throne where I stand justified
shared in my Sunday school class this morning that the pivotal point of the disciples understanding, beginning to understand what had happened to them in those days surrounding the crucifixion of their Lord. Pivotal point was when they realized, the scripture says this, they realized that he had to suffer. All they could see before that was why? Why? Why is this one we've followed and thought all of our dreams and hopes for the future rested in? Why did this happen? Why did our bottom fall out of all of it? And then God opened their eyes to show them that the bottom had not fallen out. He had to suffer. His body had to be broken. That sin might once and for all be punished for all who would look to him. Take and eat and be grateful. Jesus passed the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant that provided forgiveness and that the goodness of God could rest on his people from everlasting to everlasting. that I should know this treasure of such worth my Savior's pure atoning blood shed for the wrath I'd earned for sin had stained my every deed my every word and thought what wondrous love that makes me one your priceless blood has bought Oh, the precious blood That flowed from mercy's side Washed away my sin When Christ my Savior died Oh, the precious blood Of Christ the crucified it speaks for me before your throne Where I stand justified A crown of thorns Pierce hands and feet A body bruised And mercy's plea a crown of thorns pierced hands and feet a body bruised 
the crucified it speaks for me before your throne where I stand justified it speaks for me before your throne where I stand justified Somehow, the blood of both of uh, of goats and animals. Somehow, it was a picture of what God was going to do. It was pointing to the promise of forgiveness of sin. He he believed that his sins were forgiven; that they were moved from east from is the west. we can understand it better. We have a fuller understanding. An understanding that that picture gave forth and broke forth to reality in Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Take and drink and bless the Lord. Let's stand together and pray. Father, the world is full of religious activity that's built around being told if you'll do certain things, you can find acceptance with your God. There's something about us that wants to do it ourselves, wants to get a list that we can check off. But Lord, to keep the new covenant is not about lists. It's not about checking things off. It's about trusting in the work of another. Keeping covenant for us in this New Testament age is trusting the work of your son trusting that he finished it. That all that is needed for our sin to be forgiven has been accomplished. 
we declare, Lord, that that's where we stand. We trust your son's finished work and therefore keep the covenant. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Go in God's peace. Thank you.